time for The Outspoken Cyclist, the weekly conversation about cycles, cyclists, travel, trails, advocacy, the bike industry, and much, much more. WJCU broadcasts and streams The Outspoken Cyclist on-air show at 8 a.m. every Saturday morning. In Northeast Ohio, tune in to 88.7 FM, or worldwide, listen in at wjcu.org. Our weekly podcast is available at the close of the on-air show at OutspokenCyclist.com or download it with your favorite podcatching app to listen anytime. Now here's your host, Diane Jenks. Hello and welcome to the Outspoken Cyclist. I'm your host, Diane Jenks, and this is our show for October 17th, 2020. It's been another horrifying week here in the U.S. and in Ohio. We're hitting all-time record one-day infection rates of COVID, and we're turning the downward trend into another scary situation. At the same time, riders decided to protest the lack of safety and staged a sit-down at one of the races this week, while some teams abandoned racing due to positive rider tests. A safe and effective vaccine cannot come soon enough. We do turn to racing this week with a keen eye to the future. Rob DiMartini, the new CEO of USA Cycling, didn't come from a cycling background and brings what I believe will be a fresh and welcoming approach to a national organization that we all can and might finally want to embrace. From his forward thinking about the 2021 Olympics to everyday riders being proud to display a USA cycling sticker on their car, Rob is asking that we take another look at what bicycles mean to all of us here in the U.S. Then, as many long-time listeners know, when we approach the holidays, I like to speak with nonprofits that are doing really important and heartfelt work with an eye toward the giving season. This week, it's Free Bikes for Kids, Minnesota, and kids is spelled K-I-D-Z. A couple of weeks ago, Alina Health, which is a not-for-profit healthcare system based in Minneapolis and owns or operates 12 hospitals and more than 90 clinics throughout Minnesota and western Wisconsin, as well as employing over 27,000 people, also sponsors Free Bikes for Kids, and they collected 7,000 bikes in one day. 7,000! Tia Martinson, Executive Director of Free Bikes for Kids, joins me to talk about the organization and how you process what is more than 10,000 bikes in total for the holidays and beyond. Finally, and as promised, it's a check-in chat with Ben Serrata. The iconic frame builder talks about what people are asking for from him these days, his thoughts on how the pandemic has affected cycling, not all for the bad, and what the future might hold. So what if I told you that it cost millions of dollars to bring athletes to the podium at an Olympics? It does. And because the U.S. doesn't underwrite the cost of our Olympian athletes, the money needed to train, race, and win has to be raised by either the athletes themselves or the governing body, in this case, USA Cycling. But what if I told you that Rob DiMartini, the new CEO of the organization, is bound and determined to see our team bring home medals unlike any other squad in the past, and that's not all. Here's our conversation. Hello, Rob. Welcome to The Outspoken Cyclist. Thanks for joining me on the show this week. 
Diane, glad to be here and uh, appreciate getting the chance to talk to you. Yeah, I know. You and I actually haven't had a chance. I talked to lots of people at USA Cycling, but talking to the big cheese is, is way better, I think. <laughs> don't don't overpromise early. <laughs> <laughs> good point, good point. Uh, it's been a challenging year, to put it mildly. So I thought we might chat about what 2021 would look like since 2020 is almost in the books. There are a couple things I want to catch up on for this year too, but are, are we going to be able to, first, my first question is about, is about the Olympics because it's one of my favorite things. I think all of us love the Olympics here in the U.S. Uh, are we going to be able to field an Olympic team given our challenges with training and racing? You know, I think, I think connected to your question is will Tokyo 21 happen? Well, but there is that. Yeah. Jim Miller, who runs uh, our uh, Olympic team and, and national teams has really used the opportunity of a one-year delay to make sure that we're going to send a stronger team. And we're very confident about the team that's prepared to go to Tokyo while racing, uh, with the exception of the world, has been completely canceled for them. We uh, have been training, developing, and investing in those athletes so they get to Tokyo in July of 21 better prepared than had they gotten there in July of 20. What kinds of things are you doing right now to keep riders on the road or on the track or even cyclocross, uh, given all of the protocols that you probably have had to put in place? You, you know, we, we have put programs in place early, and uh, we took action right in the middle of March. As soon as COVID was clear, it was going to impact us. We didn't know how long, and honestly, nobody thought it would be this long. But we moved quickly and early, and because of it, you know, we've had the women's track team has spent multiple weeks at the training center in Colorado Springs training in a bubble. Maybe you saw our performance in both the MOLA, Italy, and Leo Gang, Austria at the Mountain Bike and Road Worlds. Yeah. Our team is ready, and they're going to be ready. We are committed to do well in Tokyo, and well means better than America's ever done before. In Rio, we won five medals, and that's the most in the modern Olympics that USA Cycling has ever won, and we have much bigger objectives for Tokyo. I would love to see Americans on the podium in every cycling discipline entered in the Olympics. That would be awesome. Well, Diane, let me make a comment about that because, you know, Tokyo it will be good, but uh, good on a relative basis. In Rio, we won 15% of the contested medals. Jim Miller and I have set long-term plans for Paris and in, in, in Los Angeles that would have America perform as well as track and field or swimming. And that's a level we've never been to before. It takes time, it takes money, and it, but the athletic capability in this country, uh, there's no reason that, that small northern European countries can medal better than us. We have the talent in this country. We've got to find it. We've got to develop it, and we have to invest in it. And I don't know why the USA can't win 35 to 50% of the contested medals. Oh, I would love to hold you to that, and I hope it's true. So you brought up something that didn't occur to me until what you just said, and that is financing an Olympic team. It's always been an issue. You know, you hear all of these sort of horror yep. stories about uh, athletes who have to pay their own way to get to XYZ, wherever it is. How are we going to be able to finance a team? Cycling is such an expensive sport. It is, and I'll answer it kind of in parts. I came to this organization not with a cycling background, but with a commercial background, with the idea that 
Uh, we're a nonprofit. We don't keep any of the money, and we don't uh, spend it on a lot of superfluous stuff. But we need to raise a lot more money. And we know we've looked across British Cycling, Australian Cycling, the German Cycling Federation. We know that to win an Olympic medal takes about two and a half to three and a half million dollars of investment in your athletes. Wow. That's not necessarily in one athlete, but in the athletic engine, it takes about two and a half to three and a half million dollars. We are one of the most efficient spending countries in the cycling world that's out there. And so to win 15 or 20 medals in Los Angeles, we're going to need an operating budget that's between 30 and $40 million. That's twice the size of USA Cycling pre-COVID, or four times the size of our revenue this year. And it's going to come from a new membership program designed to get all cyclists to belong to USA Cycling. We're going to be transparent where the money comes from and where it goes. But quite frankly, if, if we can't convince American cyclists to pay 60 to to $100 to belong, then we're not going to win at the levels that the Dutch and some of the stronger cycling countries do. It's that simple. Let me take a moment to reintroduce you. We're speaking with Rob Demartini. He's the CEO of USA Cycling. And uh, this is a fascinating, now it's turning into a really fascinating conversation. You want all cyclists in the U.S. to join USA Cycling. So you don't really care if they're racing. You don't really care if they're recreational. You just want some participation in terms of supporting the efforts of USA Cycling. That's what it sounds like. That's exactly it. And and this is where the silver lining of what happened this year came to us. So, you know, in your prep, you asked about nationals. We canceled 17 national championships and ran zero of them. We, we canceled 2,500 sanctioned events so far. Um, and historically, we have sold membership as a race license entry. Right. That's our fault. So short-sighted. Race, you know, race access is one of the things you get by being a member. But you should belong to USA Cycling because you're mission-driven. I mean, the American Olympic team is not government-funded. We need to raise money to get those athletes there. And I believe that for 60 to to $100, and I'm using that range because of a few different membership options, that that's money well spent if you believe in this sport. We do think that race entry is an important benefit. We're also working with rides, non-competitive uh, you know, non uh, events, and making sure that if you're a card-carrying member, you get benefits. Benefits like early registration, maybe an advantage start line, maybe a private beer tent. I don't really care what they are, but I want you as a member to say, hey, I belong. Uh, but that money goes to developing this country's top athletes. And people were great. You know, they were very excited to see how Sepkus and Nielsen Paulus did in the Tour de France, but they want to see more Americans there, as do I. But to do that, we got to get them in the, in, in the development engine right now. So I want cyclists of all types to belong. If you want to race, great. If you don't want to race, that's fine. But if you just ride with your family, I want you to put the sticker on your bumper, just like a 26.2 sticker that says, I, I support USA Cycling. And I think that's worth that much money. Now, now we got to prove it. we got to back it up. And that's the process we're in now. You have such a different perspective from any I've heard in all the years I've been in this business. And it's a long time. And I think it's really forward thinking. I think it's a great idea. Are you going to release these programs 
or are they already out there? I mean, if somebody went to the website, usacycling.org, are they going to see, join up, become a member, become a fan, become whatever it is you want to become? They are. We're about 15 to 30 days from this all coming out. So we had this all prepared in March when we were going to relaunch. And obviously, like everybody else, we were sidelined by COVID. Um, we've gone back and looked at it much more closely. Uh, we've taken a much bigger vision. We call it We Champion at USA Cycling. We champion your development. We champion youth. And we champion winning. And we do it the right way. And that's what membership's going to be about. And at usacycling.org, the details of that are going to be launched this month. Okay. It's going to take me to another part of what we were going to talk about. And I want to talk about it because you have made some inroads into the idea of inclusion and equity and diversity. I spoke with one of the women from Black Girls Do Bike, and there's a relationship there. You're, I know you have an equity group or a, an inclusion yep. group. How is that working? Uh, I think we're off to a good start. We started it kind of before this became such a hot topic in the country, and I met with Monica Garrison from Black Girls Do Bike in Cleveland back in January. I'd heard about her group and didn't know much about it, so uh, I had breakfast with her uh, then. Uh, and we've got some other efforts, but, you know, it's a suburban white kid sport today, and it needs to change if we're going to you know, create an environment that has athletes of color doing well and feeling comfortable, and we have to own that. I mean, we got where we are by the choices we either did or didn't make, and I'm fully accountable uh, to create a membership, staff, and a board it looks like the country and, and what we want to be, not where we've been. So that's been put in place. We have a task force that I am uh, put on the payroll that are folks from our staff, folks from industry, and people who bring different and, and underrepresented perspectives to USA Cycling and talk to us about how, how do we get better. We're about to announce a uh, historically black college and tribal college uh, development program at three new schools that will get kids from those schools bike racing and bike riding. So, it, you know, we're not going to get there overnight, and cycling isn't the most important portion of this conversation that's going on in the country right now, but we also are not going to use it as, an, as permission to not change. So we're working pretty hard at it. Kelsey Erickson runs that for me. She's a really talented leader. And we've got a pretty dynamic group of about 12 individuals from outside the organization that are consulting us on the choices that we that we make and the programs we put in place. I am happy to hear it. I have been reading about it. I spent some time on the site looking at that particular piece of the USA Cycling um, organization. And, and I encourage everybody who's listening now to go out to usacycling.org and take a look at the different things you're doing. So what do you think is going to happen going forward in terms of being able to have events in 2021? Will you be coming out with some sort of a guide for race directors or ride directors? Is USA Cycling going to suggest how to run events in 2021? Absolutely. And in fact, most of what you're seeing from events is originated with and was was quarterback by Chuck Hodge and Tara McCarthy from USA Cycling. In April and May, we got all American race directors together after about 10 weeks 
of research with uh, medical people, with event organizers, looking for you know where are the areas where transmission would be most likely, and then what do we do to try to minimize those risks? And uh, Terra headquarter uh, led this, and we published it. We held uh, multiple seminars with race directors. We've offered it to people for free, obviously. And we want to bring events back stronger than ever. So you asked me about 2021. I'm still cautious uh, because I don't have a crystal ball. And, and I think the country is experiencing you know, continued struggle uh, with managing the pandemic. But I do know this. We've published and will continue to provide the best guidance available. The second step we're going to do is we are taking money from our membership drive and reinvesting it with event organizers to lower their, their fees and their insurance rates so we can bring events back stronger. We'll make somewhere between a half a million and a million dollar investment in events in 2021, assuming that we have the, the you know, legal rights, if you will, geographically to bring the events back. And some will come back. Some are coming back now. But we're going to invest in those where historically that was a fund generator for USA Cycling. It will be a, an investment area moving forward. Because if, if events don't come back strongly, then I think cycling takes a big step backwards. And I'm talking racing and riding events. Oh, so you're actually looking at events not necessarily with timing and competitive components to be part of the overall outlook for USA Cycling. In a huge way. This is an, an a missed area, in my opinion, of USA Cycling. You know, racers as a subset of cyclists is a small percentage, and it's a short lifetime where the people that, that came to riding, you know, more like I did, where I participate in a century or a, uh, a local event, but it's not technically a race. You know, it's always a race at the front, but it's not technically a race. Right. That's where all the riders are. And so we're going to work just as hard with participation events as we are with races. And I think participation events are the key. It's where members should come from. And it's where that benefit package will show up that I spoke to earlier. You know, there's a reason that you should have a little bit better experience because you belong to the governing body that makes that stuff happen. And we want to do it in conjunction with event coordinators so their business can be healthier. I'm sure you know with your experience you know, guys that put on, men and women that put on local events, they're not doing it for money. There's barely any money in this business. They're doing it for passion. And so we should be helping them do it, not looking to them as a revenue source. I, I love it. I think it's awesome. I was a ride director for ugh, way too many years. And it is a so thank, you know. it's a thankless job, you know, and you only do it out of the labor of love because, again, there is no money in it. I have one last area that I don't know if USA Cycling has included it or look. I'm sure you've looked at it, and that is this virtual online racing platform or competitive platform. And are you seeing any way to hook up USA Cycling with it or have you with like Zwift and, and Peloton and all of these uh, platforms? Uh, Diane, absolutely. And in, in my participation strategic platform, we include virtual racing uh, as well as individual challenges. You know, I think what the sport needs to do, you know, the old downtown crit, which, you know, there's still a lot of good ones around, but for a lot of people, it's way too intimidating. 
And for a lot of event organizers, it's just gotten way too hard. So participation means physical and virtual events. Uh, and if you want to ride in your basement by yourself, that's fine. We, we welcome that. So we have right now a collegiate challenge going on virtually. We have a e-racing e uh, world championship qualification. So we're working with Zwift. We're working with Vid Fitness. We're working with Road Grand Tours. Uh, and I'm sure I'm forgetting a few. We're going to be platform agnostic. I don't care how and where you ride. I want you to be part of the community. And so, yes, we will continue to do uh, virtual racing, virtual leaderboards, as well as individual challenges. You know, things like go out and ride with your kids for, you know, 20 days of a month. We want to put those kinds of challenges out there to get the, the neighborhood cyclists connected to the sport and uh, in, in looking up. And, you know, I've been in sport a long time while I've not been in cycling very long. Sport is driven by stars that are worth looking up to. And we got plenty of them in this country. We got to amplify their stories. I could not agree more. And it is really good to hear a fresh perspective coming out of USA Cycling because it's been a kind of stodgy organization for all these years. I mean, it started out as USCF, you know, United States Cycling Federation yep. became USA Cycling. And there's been a lot of controversy over the last few years. So to see it sort of settling into modern times is a nice thing. We've been speaking with Rob Martini. He's the CEO of USA Cycling. If you are interested in anything we've been talking about, log on to usacycling.org. Got any last uh, minute uh, conversation? Um, you, you know, just Diane, first of all, thank you for the time. This is an important story for the sport and we do want to be a new organization. And to do that, I need members to go and sign up. It's a very modest fee to pay uh, to support the sport you love. Whether you're a racer, whether you're an event rider, or whether you just tool around with your kids, it's all welcome. And at usacycling.org, become a member today. You heard it here. Rob, thank you. Good luck for 2021. I'm sure you and I will catch up again. I hope so. Thank you, Diane. All right. Thank you. Rob Martini is the CEO of USA Cycling, and if he has his way, we will see a more cohesive organization for all of us. If you are interested and want to be part of it, log on to usacycling.org. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to find out how one healthcare system gathered 7,000 bikes for kids in one day. You're listening to The Outspoken Cyclist. You're listening to the station that is your home for college radio in Cleveland. 88.7 FM, WJCU, University Heights. The Outspoken Cyclist is proud to have Bike Law as a trusted partner. If you find yourself in need of legal advice or assistance as it pertains to any cycling issue, log on to bikelaw.com. listening to The Outspoken Cyclist. There was a photo on Facebook with a caption that made my jaw drop. Alina Health collects 7,000 bikes for free bikes for kids. 
that's a lot of bikes. And I wondered how it all went down. So I contacted Alina Health and they put me in touch with Tia Martinson, the executive director of Free Bikes for Kids Minnesota. This is the first in a series of conversations I'll have over the next few weeks as we ramp up to the holiday gift-giving season. And this story might just inspire you to start a chapter of Free Bikes for Kids yourself. Hello, Tia. Welcome to The Outspoken Cyclist. Thanks for joining me on the show today. Hello. Thank you for having me. Well, it is my pleasure. I became aware of your organization, Free Bikes for Kids, and I love it, K-I-D-Z, when Alina Health collected over 7,000 bikes in a fall fundraiser. That's an amazing number. Just amazing. Oh, they are something else. We we celebrated our 10-year anniversary partnering with uh, Alina Health in order to uh, get bikes on on a collection every fall. And they are so good at getting the word out, at the logistics of bringing all of those bikes to our warehouse. It is just spectacular. Well, let's give listeners a little background on Free Bikes for Kids, and it's K-I-D-Z, how it started, and, and what the goals are. Free Bikes for Kids started as a garage driveway-type project in one of the suburbs right near Minneapolis, Minnesota. And uh, it started in 2008 because a neighbor had seen that this group of cyclists would go out weekly on Saturday mornings to do a ride together and thought, you know, there's this uh, child in my church who whose parents are looking for a bicycle and they can't afford one. And boy, it would be great to bring one that's used that somebody may have outgrown. So, um, you know, the whole group went looking for bikes for this for this child, and they, they came up with 250 bikes. Oh, my. <laughs> they all knew a lot of people who had dusty bikes hanging in their garage, just waiting for the right time because kids outgrow those bikes almost every year. So, so it, it, it was a quick realization that the bikes were out there. And, and why are they just sitting around when, when kids could be using them? So they fixed them up in the garage and gave them away that year and thought, okay, let's do this again next year. And, and they did. And, and it grew from 250 to, you know, 700 to 1,000. And then the first big year with Alina Health, they grew to, oh boy, almost 5,000, just like that. And, and it, it hung steady there until about 2017. That's just amazing. Amazing. Let me remind listeners, I'm speaking with Tia Martinson. She is the executive director for Free Bikes for Kids. This time of year, as most of my listeners know, we like to talk to people who are doing really good things, especially for children. Uh, This has been a tough year, kids not in school, and we want to encourage them to be outside. So bikes, what else? What could be better? So (laughs) when a, a line of health got these bikes... And where did they put them? I mean, 7,000 bikes, that's a lot of bikes. How does, how does that, how does it logistically work? That is a great question. They hold a morning event from, from 9 to 1, 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. at several of their clinic and hospital sites throughout the Minnesota region. So this year it was only 43 due to COVID-19, but typically it's about 50 locations is, is where we've been holding steady every year. And, um, Oh, 120 to 130 truckloads that are all on their in their big 26 foot U-Hauls. Um, I think we rent every 26 foot U-Haul in the state of Minnesota on our collection. <laughs> <day>. <laughs> 
It is something else. They know John Papenfus, the logistics coordinator for the program. Um, they know him by name. And anytime they say, oh, free bikes for kids. Do you know John Papenfus? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yes, yes, we do. <laughs> he organizes uh, all these drivers and routes and you're going to go to to those four sites and you're going to go twice. And, you know, I mean, they, they probably, boy, I'm going to ask him. He's going to be able to know this, but they put on thousands of miles just just in that morning and, and afternoon and they bring them to the free bikes for kids minnesota warehouse which is a donated space this year brooklyn center has donated a, a space it's a city the city of brooklyn center donated a space that's i don't know probably seventy five thousand square feet that nice. um is not being used right now yeah and they wanted to, to do some things for the community and and they're they're letting us use the space and it's just been Fantastic. They come in the doors. We have volunteers at the warehouse, usually 100 to 150. This year, because of COVID-19, we were really careful and kept that number low. So we got our steps in this year. <laughs> but we bring them in to the warehouse through the various doors and we, we organize them by size. So as we clean them, we, we can and, and fix them and do all of the things. We know what we have and we know who they can go to based on what sizes they are. So that that brings me to the question of who's doing all of the repairs, what happens when they need parts. Uh, this has been a really tough year for bike shops, getting tires, tubes, cables, brake pads. You know, things have been either non-existent or in very short supply. So uh, how long does it take to get 7,000 bikes ready? And I am assuming these are being given around holiday time. Typically, yes, holiday time. And and we, we will actually have this year 10,000, like 7,000 was just on that day. Oh, my god. We goodness. will have 10,000 this year because we get other donations. But it will take, uh, what is the number on that? About 20,000 volunteer hours to do it. And typically, we do that in October and November and give the bikes away in December. And it's about 5,000 volunteers it'll take. But again, COVID-19, these are different times. We are following a new protocol. We're going to get as many done as we can by Christmas, and we'll have those ready to go. And we're just going to keep working. We're, we're going to be not seasonal this year because we certainly don't want these bikes sitting. We want them ready to go in the spring or whenever we can get them out. How do you choose who gets a bike? Where are they distributed? They are distributed through partners. So in Minnesota, we partner with 100 to 150 nonprofits uh, like schools, uh, social organizations that are, again, nonprofits, and we vet them, and we allow them to choose who has the need. So we don't actually decide who gets the bikes. We decide who we know that knows who needs the bikes. So we work hard to make sure we hit all of the geographic areas that, that we can that are within 50 to 100 miles of the Twin Cities. And then we also ensure we get bikes from the areas that are further away. So, so if they, we have a collection site 150 miles away, we ensure that we get bikes down there as well. So that wherever you're donating a bike, we're giving back to those communities. So interesting. <laughs> now, I, I want to go back to one question. You asked me about parts. And yes. I didn't mean to gloss over that. We get a lot of our parts from QBP, which is um, a distribution. Yep, yeah, but but this year again, you know, we don't have any special treatment. <laughs> so um, if the parts aren't here, the parts aren't here. So of course, I look on the site daily to see what's coming to stock. And you know, <laughs> wow, that sounds uh, familiar. <laughs> I bet it does. 
even even before COVID, we salvage anything that's unsalvageable in terms of the bikes. We strip them and we use the usable parts, and and that is part of it um, because there's no way we could even raise enough money to purchase as many saddles as we replace with saddles that are better. You know, sure. So we do all of that: tires, wheels, saddles, pedals. Um, grips even sometimes. Uh, this year we are doing something even even more unique in that we are going to be repairing tubes that are that are getting um, that are flat because we need to. And so we're we're stocking our tube supply with that. It's a challenge, and um, we're ready for it. I mean, we've been doing this for over ten years. We're way ready. <laughs> yeah, right. You just adapt. Let me remind our listeners once again: we're speaking with Tia Martinson. She is the executive director of Free Bikes for Kids up in Minnesota. That brings me to the question of looking on your website. There are other chapters of Free Bikes for Kids. Now they are many of them not too far from you: Chicago, Detroit, Madison. But then there's Portland. And there's Utah. So how is the organization expanding? You're the executive director. Are you the founder? I am not the founder. I'm the executive director of Free Bikes for Kids Minnesota. And our founder is the executive director of Free Bikes for Kids. And it's a national, now a national organization. In the last few years is, is when we started to expand. And it, it began as, as people recognizing what was happening here. And they, they'd reach out and say, how can you help us start something here? And we tried that a couple times and, and it was going pretty well. And it, it's sort of building the footprint of what our mission is. And we work as different organizations. So the Minnesota affiliate, we call it an affiliate system. The Minnesota affiliate has its own 501c3. We have our own fundraising. We have our own goals. We do all of that very, very in, independently of the national organization or our, our other affiliates. We kind of work together as colleagues though so that when when somebody comes up with ideas or solutions that work in their markets we like to share that so that if it's good for another market it might work for more than just one so so we're we we stay in good communication yet we don't work alongside one another so i have a weird question that has nothing to do with kids but have you had any inquiries as to people who might want to use a bike and not be able to afford one for either transportation or recreation, who are adults and wondering where to go? We do get those inquiries in the past because we, this sounds like a big number, but because we only get about 5,000 or 6,000 or in the past, we, we got those numbers until, until a few years ago. We could not help because the need is still greater than that with the kids. However, if we get to the end of the season and we're not continuing on and we get those inquiries, and we need to move out, they know, these, these people who are inquiring know that, that we are available to support in December, and we will. We have such a great cycling community here in the Twin Cities. We have partners who have um, earn-a-bike programs, who have giveaway programs that are, you know, they might only do 30 or 40 a year, but if it's in the neighborhood of the inquirer, we can connect them. And, and it's, it's really a beautiful thing we, we have in this area. <laughs> How did you get into this? <laughs> such a great question. My background is in a whole lot of other things. My background was in business development and also education uh, in art, <laughs> oddly. And I had gone through some personal loss and I just needed to uh, take a break. And, and I, I ended up spending a lot of time on my bike. I'd always ridden. 
always written, but, but I spent a lot of time after the loss and it changed me in a lot of ways. And I recognize, I, I feel like it saved my life, which I've heard from many other people as well about themselves. And, and I also recognize like in my life and what I wanted to do with it, it had to create impact. It had to be impactful and it had to matter to me. So I was on this quest to figure that out, and I saw this um, ad for a, for a job uh, in Minneapolis for a volunteer coordinator, and I had some experience in, in building teams and things like that, and I thought, oh, that, that sounds cool, and it's a seasonal job, so it's not like any strings attached. I'll be able to go about my business and go on my, I want to ride my bike down the Pacific uh, coast and do all these different things. Anyway, um, that was the year that we split. So the executive director at that time was Terry Esau, who is the founder. And he and our, our board chair, um, they kind of uh, stole me away for lunch one day. And they, and they gave me an interview. I didn't know what was happening. And then they said, before you go on your trip or take any jobs, you better talk to us, okay? <laughs> we have plans for you. And I said, well, that's interesting. <laughs> so, so they kind of talked me into it. And I... I mean, I haven't even looked back. I loved doing it as, as a volunteer coordinator. My background had, had a bit more experience in it. So it was a really, really good fit. Uh, and since I've been on, we've, we've grown and adapted and changed some things that have really worked well for us and, and for, for our community. Well, it's certainly successful. I mean, collecting 7,000 bikes in one day is pretty outrageous when we look at some of the smaller programs, which are all impactful and all important, but this is just enormous. Tell my listeners how they can find out more about Free Bikes for Kids, and especially if they're in the Minnesota area, how they can get involved if they want to. Absolutely. So um, the easiest way to contact us is on our website, which is fb4k before is a number fb4k.org if you go to that main page you can you can select the city you want to look at and see what they're doing for minnesota if you want to go directly to see us we are fb4kmn.org and you can sign up to volunteer you can you can see how we're doing what we're doing check out our staff page (laughs) know who you're talking to all that kind of stuff and, you know, we, we love to bring new volunteers and you don't have to know how to do anything on a bike. You can know a few things. You can know nothing because it'll be 10,000 bikes. Uh, everything's got to get moved. Everything's got to get washed. Everything's got to run. So it takes every skill level. Our mechanics are fantastic, too. And, you know, everything. I have one more question, which I was going to ask earlier. And, and yeah, I was listening to the other things you were saying. Do you offer any accessories with the bikes, like a helmet? Has anybody come up with a helmet program? Yes, I'm so glad you asked. Alina Health, part of their sponsorship with us is that they give helmets away for ah. every bike that we give. So, so they sponsor those helmets. And we've occasionally been able to um, get specific programs funded for locks and lights and things like that. And it, it typically ends up being, you know, we've worked with Kryptonite probably the most and QBP as well. Between them, we've been able to give away locks when we did our essential workers program in the spring. We gave away, between Alina Health and, and us, we gave away probably four or 500 bikes to essential workers and they got locks with those and helmets and lights. Nice. Um, 
Yeah, yeah, it was good. But again, we, we also have some school programs that we're giving lights to by, you know, kids who are over in fourth grade or above lights and locks because they're riding school and things like that. So, so it, it really um, is limited though. So we can't, we haven't been able to procure seven to 10,000 locks or anything like that. So, so it, we, we kind of work those programs specifically if we know how they're being used. I think it's a, just sounds like a fabulous program. And I'm really glad. I don't even remember. I saw it on Facebook and I don't remember the person who referred me back to you, but clearly you know the program well. We've been speaking with <laughs> Tia Martinson. She is the executive director of Free Bikes for Kids in Minnesota. If you are interested, you can check it out at F as in Frank, B as in boy, for the number K.org. Tia, thank you and good luck. Keep uh, doing wonderful work. I, it's just amazing. I'm so thank happy you, to be Diane. able to have talked with you. Thank you. Me too. I appreciate your time. All righty. Take care. You too. Bye. Bye. Tia Martinson is the executive director of Free Bikes for Kids in Minnesota. If you'd like more information, you can log on to fb4, the number four, km.org. It's all in there. So let's take another short break, and then we'll check in with Ben Serrata. You're listening to The Outspoken Cyclist. WJCU, University Heights, from the campus of John Carroll University. We are back. This is the Outspoken Cyclist. I'm your host, Diane Jenks. Like a phoenix rising from the ashes, Master Frame Designer and Builder Ben Serrata is back with some insights into not only his work, but what 2020 has given us and what we might expect going forward. Hello, Ben. Welcome back to The Outspoken Cyclist. Thanks for joining me today. It's been a while since we got to chat. It, ha- it has been, and it's a pleasure to be back. Well, and so you were my very first guest, as you might remember, 10 years ago. I know, it's like, how is that possible? There are times that it seems longer, and sometimes it seems yesterday. <laughs> we're, we're both surviving the times. We are. And maybe, maybe age has some, Well, we won't go there. We just won't no, go let's there. Not. Let's not. Let's not. So how have you and your family fared during the pandemic? Well, thanks for asking. We're, we, we're all well. We have uh, daughters who are married with babies in the Northeast here, and everyone's well. And my sister and family, well, you know, yeah, we're we're all doing well. Thank you, and I and I hope the same for you. We are. It's a very strange time, though. Yes, saying that we're well. I mean, the general health is 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 one thing, but <laughs> the uh, what sanity is 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 uh, is uncertain. You know, that is so true. That is so true. Sanity. That's a whole. That's something I haven't even thought about for a while. I, I want to Let's talk. Not go there. Okay. What you've been doing for these last seven months or so <clears throat> since I don't even remember the last time we talked. I didn't really look it up. I've been really busy, and sometimes I'm not sure how much I'm accomplishing, but um, <laughs> but I'm working very hard. Every time we check in, I tell you about how a new business is evolving, and it. And it's continuing to evolve. I, I actually had larger plans for this year than than have materialized. <clears throat> we made a decision late last year 
to do a couple things. One was uh, that if I wanted to be in this business still, which I do because I can't seem to let go, <laughs> I love it, is that I wanted to start building more bikes that people were actually asking for. You know, we, I think a couple conversations ago, I was excitedly told you about some aluminum bikes that we, that I was having done. Next conversation, I told you about some steel bikes that I was doing. And they're wonderful. Both the aluminum bikes and the steel bikes are, are great bikes and I'm proud of them. But I would say, uh, you know, maybe a couple out of a hundred people were asking for steel bikes and, and none out of a hundred were asking for aluminum. Although every taker has been surprised at how lovely they are to ride, but people have been asking for titanium bikes and or bikes that seem more exotic. So I made a decision that, uh, okay, there's a couple things that need to be done. One is I need to redesign a titanium bike or bikes and get that going. And the other is while I enjoyed flirting using other names to operate under, it's not a hobby. I do want, I do want the business to succeed. And so I, I finally decided to stop handicapping myself uh, by, by using other names other than just Serata, which is what people uh, want from me. No so, kidding. So, <laughs> I am so 100% in favor. <laughs> anyway, so those are two big decisions. And um, the tight, getting going on the titanium bike is significantly more expensive than um, the other two materials because the tooling costs, as you know, I have a thing about not making bikes the same way as everybody else does. And so I didn't want to just be able to make titanium bikes because that's no great challenge. I wanted to make titanium bikes the way they, the way I want to make them. So I redesigned or updated uh, uh, several tubing sets, um, the same themes that we've always had of addressing strength and suppleness, you know, in the same way as we have in the past, uh, but just with a little bit of a new slant and also focusing on uh, disc brake designs, which, which put different strains into the forks and frames. Uh, so anyway, that, that took some capital that I had to bring together as well as time. And I added a couple of people to my wonderful team and um, we got working on a website and, and uh, tubing was designed and, and then, and then COVID was upon us. Hmm. And unlike uh, much of the bike industry, which has flourished this year, which is an absolutely wonderful thing, we were just too late. So our supply chain on uh, having the raw materials produced suddenly had a two and a half to three month monkey wrench thrown into, <laughs> into the works. And anyway, just everything just had to slow down. Right. <laughs> and so we had this website that was ready to go up and we put it up, but we didn't have the product. We've probably from the outside, we, people have probably been scratching their heads wondering what's going on because we had a website and then we didn't, and then we did. Which, by the way, we actually put our website back up yesterday, or at least a functioning website. There's much more to come. It's been an, an interesting year, um, both in business and outside of business. But, you know, we're picking the pace up step by step. I'm cautious. I'm definitely optimistic. We've been uh, taking orders for uh, these bikes and all year the focus has been on the titanium bikes getting them into a manufacturable position and 
building some prototypes. Our last round of prototypes was just finished and now we're moving to production. So it's, it's quite exciting. Um, it's just taken longer. I have a question about what people are asking for and then your willingness to do it and your belief in it, and that is disc brakes. Now, if you're building gravel bikes, it makes perfect sense. If you're building classic Serata road machines, do you really want to go there with disc? And and I mean, I, I'm throwing that out there because I, I have this, not aversion to disc, but not understanding having to overbuild your forks and overbuild your frames to accommodate something when rim brakes work for most road bikes. So that's my three cents. Maybe only one and a half cents. I don't know. Well, no, it's, it's a good three cents. <laughs> and, you know, it's, uh, um, how do I say this? So the, the push has been to get disc brake road bikes in, you know, into the marketplace, because even if I believe we should only be building rim brake bikes, which, which I don't, but even if I believe that, I don't have the time or energy or resources to stand up to the tidal wave. <laughs> okay. No. Uh, that... uh, uh, you know? Yep. And I'll admit that I was slower coming around to gravel bikes than other people be- simply because, uh, well, you've been to this part of the, of the country. There are so many secondary roads lovely secondary roads to ride uh, in this part of the country with little to no traffic. Um, And while I almost all of my favorite loops include a little bit of of a dirt road or packed gravel road, it just wasn't hitting me that why why would anybody not want to just do this? (laughs) Right. (laughs) But the the reality is, is that one, um, lots of people, live in places where it's the only way they feel riding uh, is safe is on roads that are more than often the beaten paved path. And so gravel, riding on gravel and dirt roads is very appealing uh, for that reason. If you're doing a lot of it, it's it's a different riding style and a different environment than, than riding on pavement. So, so I embrace that too. You know, just because you can ride on most dirt and gravel roads with skinny little tires doesn't mean you should. That's true. (laughs) No, I can't disagree. Certainly bikes are, it's easier to ride uh, with greater stability if you have more tire and fully embrace the, the gravel movement. Our main, well, we have three different fork types, so we have based on different tire widths. I, I aesthetically, both aesthetically and from a weight perspective, I think having a really narrow tire and a really wide fork doesn't please my aesthetic sensibilities. And if you're planning on, on riding on very rugged um, terrain, um, I mean, m- many people who are riding gravel bikes now are essentially treating them like a mountain bike and they need to be built to withstand the things that a, that a mountain bike would. And, and so we, we have a sort of a, a, a bike that's um, meant to ride mostly on the pavement, knowing that every bike, any bike, somebody should be able to ride on rougher surfaces when they need to, <clears throat> but it's you know designed around a narrower tire and then we have a medium width and then we have a, a, a wide width uh, bike. And those are all disc brake. 
and so you asked the question about disc brakes for riding on the road versus rim brakes. And we've actually, we're, I'm, I'm still toying with the idea that we haven't committed to it yet of doing um, a new rim brake fork. I don't have my own rim brake fork at the moment, but I, I have become, because we have had uh, numerous um, customers inquire about a, you call it the classic Serato road bike. And, you know, the bikes that I was building back in the day, I never thought of them as being classic Serato bikes. I was just building what the right road bike should be at that time. And that's still the mindset that I have. And I've talked to some of these cyclists who who prefer to ride on pavement, live in areas where the cycling is great, and they don't particularly have an interest. Well, they specifically do have an interest in having a lighter, perhaps more comfortable bike. And, and they also have, in some cases, um, a significant chest of, of wonderful wheels <laughs> that they've spent a lot of money in uh, that are compatible only with rim brakes. And so we did very recently make the decision to start offering um, bikes built for rim brake use um, again. Good. Because it makes sense. Disc brakes um, are without question the, the safest of all brakes under all conditions, but they also require more attention than I think many cyclists are prepared to give them. You know, they really, if they're not maintained well, um, they're not so wonderful. That is true. And you, and you have to be careful. I, you know, I'm pretty rough on my own equipment, and <clears throat> if I have to pack up my bike, I'm not particularly paying too much attention to anything. I learned quickly that their rotors um, <laughs> are they're strong in one way. Right, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they bend. Anyways. Let me remind our listeners, we're speaking with Ben Serrata. He was my very first guest on my very first show more than 520 shows ago, 10 years ago. I speak with him periodically. He and I have known each other. I don't even want to tell you how many decades. And it's always good to catch up with him. I wanted to just going back to some history stuff. I spent some time on your Facebook page today before I contacted you for this conversation. And I noticed that people send you photos of bikes you've built them over the years, like, like they're, they're children, <laughs> you know, and showing, showing you how much they still love those bikes and telling you all about your, their history, you know, where they've been and, and where they've ridden them and, you know, where they've traveled with them. What do you think about when you see one of the bikes you built, whether you remember the person or not, because a lot of your bikes went through bike shops, they may not have come directly from you. What do you think when you see one of your bikes like that? I mean, like, is it like seeing one of your kids? Um, it's, um, well, a little bit. With every one of those bikes, there is, you know, there's especially people who who are attached to the bikes, which is which is many. It's satisfying, you know. It, it doesn't, you know, this from from your time being in the business of the of the bike business. It's, I mean, we we really are lucky people to be able to do something that becomes a a joyful, meaningful part of somebody's life, and and so it's. It's satisfying, and, and you know, I, I have a, this privileged sense—not that I am—to you know, be able to, to have been doing that. And yeah, and I and I think about uh, when I see when I see some of the very old bikes. It, it well, it, it takes me back. There's a 
there are a lot of people and a lot of stories, um, you know, that, that each of those bikes is, is associated with. And I, every now and then it's startling because every now and then somebody sends a picture of bike or is talking about a bike. And I'm thinking to myself, that can't be one of our bicycles. And then, I, you know, <laughs> then they send a little bit more information and it's like, Oh yeah, we, Oh, that was one of the bikes we built for the specialized team. Or it was one of the bikes we built for performance and it's fun. It's, 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 it's enjoyable um, and, uh, and gratifying. That's good. That's good. So I want to talk to you a little bit about 2020 and how strange it's been for people in the bicycle business. I mean, you had your issues with getting product and it seems like there's this quote unquote mini bike boom that I don't know if it's going to last. I spoke with White Industries earlier this week and they are going crazy with their product, but they're very reluctant to bring more people on because they just don't know how long it's going to last. What are you thinking? What stood out to you about 2020, other than the fact that we've been locked down several times? And you're in New York, so of course we know all about your governor, and and our governor hasn't been much different, just quieter about it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I'm pretty sure I've shared with you that part of the detour I had in in the last, uh, you know, eight years, seven or eight years has been in, in doing some work for a couple different bike share companies. Yes. And, and in, in a way, I, I think, uh, and, uh, and so I, I've seen this growth in cycling as an, as an activity, perhaps more so than, than was obvious from being inside the, you know, the bike store oriented bike industry. And, and so to some degree, the growth hasn't surprised me that much. There, I think there were, there were a lot of people who were dabbling in bike share, tickled the curiosity of a lot of people. Um, and, and many folks were using bike share systems on a, on a sort of a trial basis. I think riding a bike as a means of getting around was on more people's minds than maybe the people in the inner and the, in the retail side of the bike industry were realizing. So I think that's a piece. Um, uh, certainly e-bikes, the portion of the, of this boom that is e-bikes, um, that it, that's a wave that was already coming. It's, it was already in full scale in, in Europe and, and other parts of the world, simply because cities were already, they were already overcrowded. Their public transportation was, you know, already overused and antiquated in much of Europe and and North America, less so in parts of Asia. Um, so I think I think that there was already significant men- momentum going that that perhaps again the the traditional retail bicycle business in in North America was a little bit less aware of. But it's still it's still it's a wonderful thing. And and I think over the last half a dozen years or so, the supply chain retailers and wholesalers, uh, manufacturers, all became wiser and were, were already uh, in a poor position to handle a surge uh, because inventory, carrying inventory is, has been one of the banes of, of the bike industry's <laughs> existence for a while. And, and, and finally, the industry was learning how to, uh, how to be more lean that way. And it's a wonderful thing when your forecasts are pretty accurate. 
<laughs> doesn't work so well when there's a, a large surge. And I, and I, I have friends in, in Asia as well, um, good friends who are in the industry. And, and, and I think everyone there is trying not to overreact in the same way that you mentioned white industries is, is that everybody is crazy busy and they're, they're worried about, they worry about when we're going to turn the corner and suddenly, you know, there's going to be um, a hole, you know, possibly. So I don't know. I look out the window, just like sometimes managing a, a company is best done by walking around. I look out the window and, and what I see is, is without question, it seems week by week, more people are out on bicycles of all different types with smiles on their faces. And, you know, I think that's a pretty good sign in that, in that it's a sign that, that what they're doing is something that's genu genuinely appealing to them. And also the number, the percentage, I haven't been doing a count, but the percentage of, of female cyclists compared to male cyclists, I'm not sure if it's 50-50 yet, but it's, boy, it's such a significant change from a few years ago uh, when cycling was still very male dominant. So my, my look into the crystal, the cracked crystal ball <laughs> is that, that I think the surge, the surge has to slow down. I think a lot of the people who are buying bikes now are not the customers that we've come to love who, who buy a new bike every year or every other year. They're, they're practical minded people. And so I, I think that um, the the trend will continue. It'll have to slow down, and I think the service part of the industry will will thrive for for you know for years to come. That's my that's my forecast. Oh, that's a good forecast. I think certainly I'm seeing the service side. Uh, I mean, I'm hearing of bike shops earlier this year that had literally 400 repairs closed down for a week just yeah. to catch up. So I do know. And then of course, running out of all of the product they need to do those repairs, which was another whole issue and seems to still be an issue. That pipeline is not full yet. It's going to take, it's going to take months yeah. to even out. Well, as always, it's so much fun to speak with you. We were just up in the Adirondacks not too long ago. Well, ne ne next time, next time, uh, bring your mask. Let me know. Absolutely. Oh, are you, are you kidding? There's a mask <laughs> everywhere. There's two in my car, one in my pocket. You know. Well, Ben, it's always great. We've been speaking with Ben Serrata. Is your website, what's it going to be? Is it live? It's, When's it going live? It's serrata.com. Oh, well, can't get better than that. Can't get too much more simple than that. Well, it's always <clears> good so, to talk with you, you, and I'm glad things are doing well. Thanks. Thank you so much. It's a talk pleasure. to you again. Bye. Bye. My thanks to Ben for taking time to chat with me today. If you want to see the new models or find out more about Ben and his work, you can log on to serrata.com. My thanks also to Rob Martini from USA Cycling and Tia Martinson from Free Bikes for Kids. My conversation with Mark Ganey, the CEO of Strava, is really going to happen. It's been rescheduled for the October 31st show. But I'll be back next week with a brand new show, I hope you enjoyed this week's show, and thank you so much for listening. Have a great week, stay safe, stay well, and remember, if you have a chance, go for a ride. Bye-bye.
for joining us today on The Outspoken Cyclist with Diane Jenks. We hope you enjoyed this week's show and we welcome your thoughts and comments. We'll be back next week with new guests, topics, conversations, and news from the world of cycling. Remember, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and most other podcast apps and never miss an episode. The Outspoken Cyclist is a copyrighted production of DBL Promotions with the assistance of WJCU-FM Cleveland, a service of John Carroll University. Thanks again for listening, ride safely, and we'll see you next week.